Welcome to Kidney Commute, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation, driven by the interprofessional team with emphasis on the patient voice. In each episode, we will incorporate the perspectives of the different members of the kidney team as well as the patient. Join our huddle on all things kidney health and allow new perspectives to inspire collaboration in your practice. Eligible listeners can earn credit along the way. The Kidney Commute, a continuing education podcast planned by the team for the team. Hello and welcome to The Kidney Commute, a National Kidney Foundation podcast. My name is Dr. Kelly Beers and I'll be the host of today's discussion. Today we have a fantastic panel of people who all have different areas of expertise on the topic of breastfeeding. This is an interesting podcast today because this was actually requested by a listener in response to one of our earlier women's health podcasts. We had a listener reach out and ask if we can talk about the really controversial, potentially topic of breastfeeding. Joining me today is an esteemed group of panelists who I will now ask to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Sylvisha. I'm a breastplant nephrologist at the University of Cincinnati. Hi, my name is Caitlin Edson. I'm a pediatric dietitian and I focus on starting solids. Hi, I'm Haley Jensen and I am the director of transplant programs at the National Kidney Foundation. Um, But today I'm speaking as a recipient. I got a kidney transplant in 2008. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephanie Yankee. I'm an abdominal transplant pharmacist here at the University of Cincinnati. Hi, my name is Stephanie Burke. I'm a registered dietitian and internationally board certified lactation consultant. And I currently provide services at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay, great. I would like to start off this discussion by hearing from a patient. Haley, can you tell our listeners about your experience with feeding your baby? So I had a great experience breastfeeding, but it was really tough to get there. I was told right from the get-go in conversations with my nephrologist that I would not be able to breastfeed if I had kids because of my medications. And that was really it. So I I took that to heart. Um, And for the next few years, as I got engaged and married and started thinking about having kids, I really always assumed that I would be formula feeding my kid. And I didn't have a problem with that. I just didn't even know I had other options. It wasn't actually until I was pregnant and meeting with my high-risk OB that she told me breastfeeding could be an option because my immunosuppressants were considered safe. I was really surprised to hear that. And I was really excited that I then got to think about the process of how I wanted to feed my child and what I wanted that experience to look like and make the decision for myself. So that was really empowering and really awesome. I ended up deciding to give it a shot and had a great experience. We breastfed for about 11 months, um, including traveling and going back to work. I had a lot of great support from my family. I was so lucky that I had a provider who knew that, who could speak to me about it, and then let me make that decision. That's wonderful. I'm so glad it worked out for you. I know as a nephrologist myself, there are so many questions that I have had in counseling my patients. And I feel like it's not something that is addressed enough. And we're really hoping that with this podcast, we can provide education to our nephrology community so that more patients can get the kind of guidance that you did to help them have that journey if possible. Sylvie, the production of breast milk is driven by hormones. Do people with kidney disease have any hormonal changes that can impede their milk production? Patients with kidney disease do have the impairment of their hypothalamic gonadal axis, which uh, causes dysregulation in hormones. So there is 
decrease in the levels of estrogen and progesterone and increase in the levels of prolactin, which may impair fertility. However, if they're able to get pregnant, that fertility is still there and they're ovulating, they should be able to breastfeed as well because breastfeeding occurs in response to changes which occurs after delivery. So the loss of uh, inhibitory effect of progesterone is gone with the delivery of placenta and then prolactin and oxytocin kicks in, which uh, kind of stimulates milk production. Most of the patients with kidney disease who have a successful pregnancy, they are able to breastfeed. What I tell my patients is I just educate them about the whole process. At the same time, I, I encourage patients to breastfeed. We counsel them about making sure they're on the right medications because one of the concerns for patients is if these medications pass on to the milk and they can harm baby. So I think that is one thing which we always ensure that they are on the correct medications, but at the same time, encourage exclusive breastfeeding if they are able to for all my patients with kidney disease who are pregnant. Stephanie, a major concern among physicians and new patients is whether medications they're taking will be in their breast milk. And if they are, are those medications going to be safe for their babies? Can you tell us from the pharmacist's perspective what we know about how medications get into breast milk and what risks they may pose to a baby who's drinking that milk? Yeah, that's a really good question. That's something that we get a lot as well. Really, each medication is different with its pharmacokinetic profile. So this means how the drug is metabolized, absorbed throughout the body and different tissues as well. With a lot of the drugs, we look at components such as protein binding. So if a patient is taking a medication that has a very high protein-bound component to it, that means it's binding a lot to its albumin and glycoprotein in the body. It's going to circulate more in the blood, thus less going into the breast milk and potentially the placenta. Other components that consist with it is the molecular weight of the drug. So drugs that have more than 1,000 Daltons of weight, more likely not to pass through the breast milk. So anything with less than 1,000 Daltons of weight or even less than 500 are more easily susceptible to pass. So these are the general criteria of what we look at within a drug's pharmacokinetic profile to see if they're more or less likely. This does not necessarily always mean that it will or will not pass into the breast milk, um, just because there are different components amongst the mother as well that we, we're looking at. So pregnancy alone, going through the different trimesters may change how much protein your body has, may change the parameter of the weight of the drug that can allow to pass through your breast milk at each different time points. So that's why really, in the end of the day, we have to look at what data we have for it. Uh, we have human trials or even animal studies to sit, tell us if the drug is going to be safe or not. Last question, Stephanie, do you have any resources that physicians would be able to access so that they can find out the latest recommendations as far as what medications are safe in breastfeeding? It's recommended to look on Lexicom. And Lexicom has a nice brief section with pregnancy and lactations information. But if you keep scrolling on that, it links you directly to the Briggs um, um, pregnancy and lactation, technically text that shows um, that has more detailed accounts of each drug and the data that's currently available, if it's human data or animal studies, um, and what the general consensus are from different organizations. So that's my favorite place to look first. Historically, we used to have FDA risk categories, such as categories A, B, C, D, and X, that told us if a drug was safe or not. During 2015, the FDA got rid of these categories and said, we're no longer going to use this. This is causing a lot of confusions. This is actually leading to more prescribing of potentially harmful medications in pregnant women. Um, so we're going to go ahead and remove this and we're going to just have synopsis um, that require a lot more reading, but a lot more 
educated decision-making to determine if a medication is going to be safe for a pregnant woman. Stephanie, anyone who has breastfed has likely been sent a recipe for lactation cookies or has seen lactation tea on the shelves. Do these products work and should our patients try them? That is a very common question that I get asked not only in the prenatal clinic, but also in the hospital on the labor and delivery or postpartum unit. Although mothers will swear by some of these products, they actually are not proven and are not evidence-based. So the theory behind that is a potential placebo effect. So it is not something that I ever recommend doing. Of course, you know, if a mom is eating oatmeal or, or eating these lactation cookies, they don't seem to pose any harm, but there's no evidence that they're actually helpful. What will help milk production? The most important thing to consider with developing an adequate milk supply is adequate and frequent breast stimulation. So making sure that milk is being removed often enough, whether that's by baby when you're with baby or by pumping if you're away from baby, and then also making sure that baby has an adequate latch. Those are the, the two main things that come into play with developing an adequate milk supply. There aren't any products at this point as a simple fix to increasing milk supply. As a lactation consultant, how do you counsel patients regarding the safety of breastfeeding based on which medications they're taking? When I particularly am seeing a mom prenatally, one of the first questions I do ask is if she's on any regular medications on a regular basis when she's not pregnant. I use the Medication and Mother's Milk Manual by Dr. Thomas Hale from Texas Tech University. And this book comes out every two years. So the most current version is 2021. And this manual ranks the safety of breastfeeding one through five, with one being the safest category that the medication would be in and breastfeed and five being contraindicated. What I do is present the information to the mother. It is not for me to say whether she can or can't or should or shouldn't breastfeed, but I present her the information so that she can make an informed decision on her own or if she needs to take the information back to one of her providers or even pediatrician to discuss together. And can you explain what those categories are and which categories are considered safer versus what categories are mm -hmm. contraindications? The first category is an L1 that's considered compatible. And for that category, the drug has been taken by a large number of breastfeeding women without any observed increase in adverse effects to the infant. Control studies, they fail to demonstrate a risk to the infant or possibility of harm. The second category would be probably compatible. So in this category, the drug has been studied in a limited number of breastfeeding women, but also without a risk of adverse effects to the infant. The L3, kind of the middle of the road category, and I can say that a lot of commonly used medications do tend to fall in this category, at least the ones that I'm looking up here in our clinic. And the L3 is considered probably compatible, and there are no controlled studies in breastfeeding women, but the risk 
of adverse effects to a breastfed infant is possible, but probably minimal and non-threatening. The L4 category is potentially hazardous. And for this category, there's a positive evidence of risk to a breastfed infant or to breast milk production. Either the risk to the milk supply or the risk to the infant tend to outweigh the benefits of breastfeeding. And then the last category is the hazardous category. And this would be the category that would be contraindicated and we absolutely would not recommend breastfeeding. I know when I was training as an internal medicine physician and then a nephrologist, I was under the impression that a commonly used class of medicines that we use in kidney disease all the time, the ACE inhibitors and the angiotensin receptor blockers were contraindicated in breastfeeding. They are definitely contraindicated in pregnancy. And I actually, in the past, had counseled patients that they shouldn't breastfeed if they plan to resume those medications after delivery. Those are medications um, ending in Sartan or Pril. Now, mm -hmm. some of those medications actually, it turns out, are safe to use in breastfeeding. Can you just comment on a few of those medications and whether they are considered safe to use in our breastfeeding moms? As far as the ACE inhibitors go, the Captopril and the Enalapril, both of those are considered L2 risk categories. So both of those limited data, probably compatible. The Focinopril, Lisinopril, Ramipril, all of those are considered a risk category three. So there's no data, but they're probably compatible. When I was researching these, it was noted that these were contraindicated to use in the second and the third trimester during pregnancy, but that they could be resumed in the postpartum period. And then as far as the ARBs, the majority of those are the L3 category, so no data, probably compatible, except for the Palmesartan, and that is actually considered an L4. There's no data, but it's considered possibly hazardous, and basically what it was saying is that because it is such a potent drug, it was then placed in the L4 category. That's really helpful, I think, for a lot of our providers to know. So in general, ACEs and ARBs are okay in breastfeeding moms. We want to avoid Telmisartan, and the best options are probably going to be Captopril or Enalapril. Correct, based on the lactation risk categories. Are there some resources that you'd like to share with our audience that they can use to look up what medications are safe and to get other resources about breastfeeding? There is a free app that you can download that's called LactMed, and that's L-A-C-T-M-E-D. I will say that in regard to medications, it is not as comprehensive as the medications in mother's milk reference is, but it can be very easily accessed. Medications in mother's milk, they do also have an app that can be downloaded for a small fee. They also have at Texas Tech the Infant Risk Center that anyone can call and get a live person on the phone and speak to them about the safety of medications with breastfeeding. Sometimes new medications will come out after the most recent version of the book has been written. So I find myself fairly often calling them or even if the information in the manual is just a little bit vague, 
the nurse that you speak with on the line, she can even break it down in regard to the chemistry half-life. If the medication is safe with breastfeeding, but maybe mom needs to wait four hours after taking the medicine before she can breastfeed. So that is a really great resource as well, and it's free. Any local hospital, WIC program, Women's Infants and Children, although they're known as the formula program, they actually have a huge breastfeeding support program. If you're looking for online resources, kellymom.com is our go-to because it is evidence-based and it's not just someone's opinion. The Leche League, which is LLL.org, is also another online resource that is evidence-based. And I would just caution moms from Googling or from being involved in a lot of complicated mommy boards, especially in regard to breastfeeding, because as you said before, every mom is different, every baby is different, and although on on boards they're trying to be helpful, you know, advice that someone offers, someone that worked from them may not work for someone else. So really just, you know, looking to the experts and trying to get evidence-based advice is always going to be the best. Sylvie, as a physician, how do you counsel your patients regarding the safety of breastfeeding based on medications that they may be taking? So Stephanie, uh, our pharmacist did touch on most of the medications which are safe to take during breastfeeding. I think as a physician, I make sure that we don't do the reverse switch. So patients should be continued, uh, especially transplant patients should be continued on azathioprine and uh, calcineurin inhibitors and prednisone if they are on it during pregnancy uh, till they complete breastfeeding. One of the things I would like to highlight here is methyldopa, though it is rarely used, but it is associated with postpartum depression. So I really want to educate here all um, the providers and patients that methyldopa is associated with postpartum depression and the risk of postpartum depression is really high with kidney disease uh, especially. So we have to make sure they are on an alternative medication for their blood pressure. That's a really, really important point to make. And postpartum depression, obviously something a lot of women experience and we wanna do everything we can to help support them and minimize that. And one of the things I'm fairly certain that is associated with postpartum depression is women struggling to breastfeed Caitlin, all parents want to give their children the best nutrition that they can. If someone can't breastfeed, what other options do they have? If a baby is under 12 months of age, the major options that they have are infant formula or donor milk. Typically, infant formula is going to be a little bit more readily available than donor milk. However, of course, now we have this formula shortage, which is getting a little bit better. Infant formula is the number one. Donor milk, you can absolutely find if that's something you're interested in. There are milk banks. Um, Sometimes people find like a friend or a family member to donate to them. So that's an option as well from somebody who either had an oversupply or lots of extra freezer milk or whatever that may be. But of course, right now with the infant formula, we are in a little bit of a formula shortage. I recommend that you give your baby whatever formula that they can tolerate. Right now, 
a lot of the standard formulas are available, but some of the more specialized formulas are a little bit harder to find. So if baby has a lot of sensitivities, an allergy or something like that, some of those specialized formulas can be a little bit more difficult, but it seems to be getting a little bit better. So certainly infant formula is totally fine. Toddler formula, typically we stay away from if we can. However, it is not a terrible alternative if you're not able to find your formula. However, I would say to stay away from cow's milk until baby is 12 months of age because it does not have the nutrient profiles that we look for for a baby who's developing in that first year. And just so the listeners know, we're recording this in the middle of August in 2022. So as Caitlin was saying, the formula shortage is getting better. But in addition to being a nephrologist, I'm a relatively new mom. I have an almost seven month old and I've been very lucky in that we've had a very successful breastfeeding journey. But I was in the local pharmacy yesterday in the baby aisle and was shocked that there were literally two things of formula on the shelf still. So it's definitely still a problem. And I I really feel for all the parents out there that are struggling to find formula for their children. Hopefully this will get better sooner. Stephanie, the American Academy of Pediatrics recently released new guidelines surrounding breastfeeding. Can you explain those guidelines to our listeners? Of course. So the American Academy of Pediatrics, I believe it was in June, revised their policy statement on breastfeeding, and the current recommendations are to exclusively breastfeed the newborn, meaning only breast milk is offered unless there's a medical indication otherwise until that infant is six months old. And then at the six-month mark, with the guidance of a pediatrician, complementary or solid foods would be started. And then to continue breastfeeding until two years or until mutually desired by the mom and baby. I will say that, you know, there are some common misconceptions as far as thinking about and considering breastfeeding until two years and may scare some moms. But once solids are started, you know, it's really of note that that really is the beginning of weaning from breastfeeding. And not that weaning is going to happen suddenly, but as baby starts to eat more solid foods, they tend to decrease the amount of times a day they breastfeed. So breastfeeding a one-year-old, a toddler, an 18-month-old is very, very different than breastfeeding in those first six months where 100% of the baby's nutrition is coming from mother's milk. Most infants or toddlers, when given the opportunity, do tend to self-wean between 18 months and two years. And usually, although there's always an exception to the rule, usually those kids are only breastfeeding two, maybe three times a day, unless there's an illness or something like that going on. So it's not as if they're continuing to breastfeed eight, ten times a day like they are as a newborn. And a lot of moms then choose, once they make it to that year point, you know, they can stop pumping, you know, and just breastfeed when the baby wants to, when they're together, and not have to fully maintain as compared to what they've done for the several months prior to that. They say breastfeed as long as is mutually beneficial. In your mind, Mm -hmm. what does that mean? So in my mind, that means 
when they both are ready to do that, you know, and some of that may be physical, especially for mom, if her milk supply, you know, has decreased to the amount of, you know, thinking that she's not providing enough to even, you know, the emotional aspect of it. Um, having that skin-to-skin time, having that sense of touch, which is, you know, pivotal to baby's development, but also, you know, makes mom's hearts happy. You know, I will say with outside pressures, whether that's from family saying, why are you still breastfeeding this baby? Or even from providers or pediatricians in the AAP's policy statement, it was noted that up to 50% of mothers don't even report to their pediatrician that they are continuing to breastfeed after one year. So it's almost like that dirty little secret that they're keeping to themselves. I think a lot of it has to deal with the mental health. You know, what does mom want to do? What does baby want to do? If mom decides that she does want to wean, how is the baby responding to that? You know, ultimately, there are other ways that Mothers can bond with their toddlers with still touching and holding and reading to your child. I'm not sure, in my opinion, that it will be a mutual decision at the same time because they could easily come at different stages. I know for myself, this was really important in my decision to start breastfeeding and, and how not to stress myself out about it. I was told actually, or I'd heard, I guess, a lot of horror stories about breastfeeding before before I had even got pregnant. And so I went into it thinking it would be really, really hard and really challenging. And some things were, but I think actually because the bar was so low in my mind, it went better than I expected. But because I was intimidated by breastfeeding, I started by setting really small goals for myself and giving myself permission to stop whenever it was too stressful or worrisome or uncomfortable. And so I, I told myself I'd try just for two weeks and then just for six weeks and then just for three months. And I just kept moving that back because it was going okay and we were doing fine. Breastfeeding ended up being more convenient and more cost-effective for my family. I had some great help from a lactation consultant in the hospital on how to pump. So when I went back to work, I had good help on that. This point where it started to be not mutually beneficial was I started to notice that my son wasn't drinking as much and I wasn't producing as much. And I really, really, really didn't want to pump when I was at work. Like it was making my day more stressful and more hard. So that's when we decided to make the switch. And that worked really well for me of being really thoughtful about what kind of expectations I could set for myself based on my schedule and and my family and my babies and my needs together. It's such a healthy way to think about it. And Haley, it's interesting the way you describe your breastfeeding journey is very similar to mine. I didn't have the the pressure of being a kidney patient, but I felt going into it, this is my first child. And I'd heard so many stories and I'd had patients that struggled with breastfeeding. I'd had friends that struggled with breastfeeding. And I tried to set very low expectations for the entire experience based on hearing how hard it is. And I know it is very, very difficult for a lot of people, but I also think that sometimes you hear more about the difficulties of breastfeeding than you hear about the benefits of breastfeeding at this point. And it really does work so, so well for so many families and it's so personalized. And I think that that's an important thing for all of our listeners to remember is that 
we want to support each of our patients as an individual and every family is going to have a different experience with feeding their child. And as the providers and the healthcare team, we want to support them the best we can with whatever decision they make that's best for their family and having the information so that we can give them the most up-to-date guidelines and we can give them recommendations based on their specific medical issues, their chronic conditions, the medications they're taking, and what is going to really help with their lifestyle as well, because pumping isn't fun, as you said. And when you're working and pumping and trying to feed your kid, that can get overwhelming. And, and maybe it isn't mutually beneficial anymore when you just are sick of looking at your pumps and don't want anything to do with that. But there's also so many wonderful things as far as the bonding experience you can have with your child with nursing. And I think it's important for us to help support our patients with whatever they choose to do. So any information we can give to help physicians and healthcare providers feel like they have the right information, I think is great. Sylvie, is it safe for moms with COVID to breastfeed? I get asked this question very often, and it is safe actually for mothers if they have COVID during delivery or during pregnancy to breastfeed. And even um, the neonatologists and the pediatricians encourage it. We encourage it as well. So yes, it is safe. And in some ways, I feel it's probably good for the baby because they're going to be getting those antibodies, right? That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe it's even encouraged for COVID positive moms to breastfeed. Caitlin, along the breastfeeding journey or formula feeding or whatever our patients are doing, there comes a time when you start salads and you do wean the baby from the bottle. Can you explain how you recommend introducing salads? Whether baby is breastfed or formula fed, however baby was fed, we typically recommend that they're starting solids at about six months old. That's the current recommendation from the American Academy of Pediatrics as well. So um, six months or six months adjusted if baby was born early is typically when we want to start. That is because of their readiness cues at that point. They're able to sit up straight, so it's safer for them to sit and swallow. And that's also the point that they typically need some additional nutrients. So before six months old, they're getting all their nutrients from either that breast milk or formula, whatever they're receiving. And then they're going to need some other things like additional iron at around six months old. So that's when we start introducing solid foods at that point. And there's a variety of different ways you can start salads. Some families prefer to do purees and start with that. Some families like to go more of that baby led weaning approach, which is kind of when you start with more of soft finger foods, but that's about the age where we start and it can be complementary with the formula or the breast milk. So it's not like at six months old, you just stop the formula, the breast milk and go right to solids. It's a slow weaning process where you start with a little food and kind of increase as the months go on. When should other forms of milk be introduced? Full milk in particular, usually at about 12 months. So it, as long as baby's healthy and growing normally at 12 months old, we can transition from breast milk or formula to whole milk. If a family doesn't have dairy products in their home, doesn't want to use dairy products, or if baby has like a milk protein allergy or something like that, you can introduce non, you know, non-dairy forms of milk oat milk, things like that. There's different options. About 12 months of old, we can, or 12 months of age, we can make that transition. 
And if mom is breastfeeding and wants to continue breastfeeding, that's totally fine as well. You don't have to make the switch, but there's no reason to continue formula after 12 months unless baby is not growing properly or something like that, in which your pediatrician would guide you to continue formula or switch to a toddler formula or something like that. Now, this is more just for my curiosity. What is your preferred non-dairy milk? For a lot of clients that I have, I usually recommend pea milk. So Ripple is the most common brand actually. And pea milk is great because it's fortified with a lot of the fat that's needed and it has added calcium in it, vitamin D. So it's the closest alternative to dairy milk that I like to recommend. Now, sometimes parents of kids with allergies If they have a dairy allergy, sometimes that comes with having other allergies like nuts and legumes and things like that. And peas are a legume. So you kind of have to pay attention. But if if we're just switching to a non-dairy milk just because we don't want to introduce dairy, then I like to recommend pea milk for sure. I wanted to open up the conversation to all of the panelists. Are there any myths that you've heard about breastfeeding that you think we should try to dispel or any different misinformation or different information that people have heard that we want to get out there that we should stop sharing with our patients? The biggest one was you can't breastfeed. I think the concern was actually tacrolimus primarily, which is interesting. The other big one that I ran into a lot in terms of of misinformation, I, I had to get some procedures during that postpartum period. And there was a lot of confusion about if and when I could breastfeed after being under some form of anesthesia. I was really, really reliant on my OB to to help me basically check everything that I was hearing from somebody who wasn't really familiar with breastfeeding. So she was really helpful and she was able to offer me that resource, LACMED, to point people to. And that made a really big difference for me, having somebody who I could go to who was knowledgeable, who could help me address these questions that are not even these questions, this, these, these directives that I was getting that I, I wasn't quite sure were right. Yeah. LATMED seems like a great resource. So L-A-C-T-M-E-D is a free app that we can use and we can direct our patients to, and we should definitely utilize our OB colleagues because they probably will have more up-to-date information than a nephrologist about what's safe as far as breastfeeding. There's also an article that we're going to link to in our show notes that was published in the Advances in Chronic Kidney Disease Journal in 2020, entitled Breastfeeding and Medication Use in Kidney Disease, which is an excellent resource that all of our providers can use as well. One that I commonly come across in the clinic is that you have to drink milk to make milk. You do not have to drink cow's milk in order to make breast milk. You do have to be hydrated but you do not have to drink cow's milk. And breast milk is actually made from a combination of mom's fluids, food, and blood products. So there are a lot of ingredients in there and cow's milk or soy milk is not required. And the other really, really big myth that we hear is that breastfeeding is going to hurt for the first couple of weeks. If breastfeeding was supposed to hurt, the human race would have been extinct many millions of years ago, although I will say for many women, breasts and nipples can be a very sensitive part of the body, so having 
mild soreness, tenderness, sensitivity in the first few days can be normal, but pain to the point of holding your breath, curling your toes, feeling like you have to power through, or telling your support person, just take the baby, this hurts too bad, I can't do this anymore. That is never normal, and you would always want to seek advice from a lactation consultant or your pediatric office to have the latch checked out. More often than not, it is a latch issue where baby is not getting onto the breast deeply enough, not getting enough tissue in the mouth so that the nipple is really far back to the soft palate. But there are some anatomical instances inside the baby's mouth like tongue tie, short frenulum, high palate, things like that that can also be assessed. I feel like another myth, not necessarily a myth, but maybe it's just that there's just so much information out there now from everybody, social media, wherever it may be, TV, just whatever it is about this is better to do than this formula is better to do than this. This formula is better or don't get donor milk, do get donor milk, whatever it is. And I think that parents really need to focus on making an individual choice and focus on what's working for them whether that be exclusively breastfeeding for two years or for six months and then totally switching to formula or doing a combination of both. And I think that it's not thrown out there a lot that one thing may work for you that's going to work for this person. And there's a lot of information out there. So trying to kind of get through all of that. And if you need help, there is help out there. There are professionals who can guide you and kind of direct you on how to feed your baby and make sure they're getting enough in the best way that also works for you so that you're not driving yourself nuts too. I couldn't agree more with Caitlin on that one. And as a patient, one of the coolest things about this was it was this sort of normal thing I got to do, even as a kidney disease patient, all those things you just described and dealing with information overload is like a very normal kind of thing to deal with when you have a new baby. And it was amazing for me to get to connect with other moms who are struggling with all these same kinds of things. It was something I got to experience as someone with kidney disease. And obviously there were, you know, things here and there about my journey that were different because I have kidney disease, but there was a lot that that wasn't. And that was a really, really cool experience for me. Haley, what were some resources you used to connect with other moms? I took a class before I had a baby and there was a Facebook group. So that was really helpful. I also just met other moms in my area, connected with friends that I met through church, through graduate school, through really anything. And then I think lastly, the thing that struck me the most after having my son was the number of patients who reached out to me on social media because they knew I was a transplant recipient. They knew I'd had a baby and they had tons of questions. And I could really relate to that because I felt very alone during the whole process. That was really, really interesting and kind of amazing to see that that amount of need and questions. So I think I'm so excited that we're here and we're talking about this and that someone asked this question because it's nice to know that there are others out there and you're not alone. Caitlin, who would you recommend patients speak to if they have questions about feeding their child? Should they be talking to their pediatrician? Should they be getting a referral to someone like you? Yeah, for sure. So I think your pediatrician is a good place to start, of course, and it depends on exactly what's going on. But there's lots of pediatric feeding professionals. You know, I do a lot of things with starting solids and guiding parents throughout that whole process and how to balance their breast milk or formula with food 
There's speech therapists who do more feeding therapy with sensory issues, tongue ties, things like that. Occupational therapists who work with feeding and of course, lactation consultants too, who are really helpful in the whole breastfeeding journey. So there are lots of professionals out there. And if you ask to be referred and you don't feel like you got the referral that you need, you can always push further and, and look in your area and see who there is out there. Is there anything else that any of the panelists would like to make sure to touch on with this topic? So, you know, I would just like to emphasize that there may be uh, a lot of guilt also associated if patients are not able to breastfeed. So one thing which I always counsel them is to do what works best for them and their baby. There may be a lot of challenges in the breastfeeding journey, which a lot of us shared in this podcast, issues with latching, exclusive pumping. But at the same time, uh, reach out to all the support they have, whether it's social media groups, whether it's your lactation consultant, whether it's your pediatrician, or whether it's your kidney doctor. This is something uh, I always uh, counsel my patients on as well. I think everyone can agree that fed is best. And so whatever is best for your baby is going to be what is best for you and what makes sure that they're fed and healthy and growing really, really important to provide that support to all of our patients as they grow their families. I'd like to thank everyone who participated in this fantastic conversation about breastfeeding for our patients with kidney disease. I really think this was a fantastic episode. It was wonderful hearing from a lactation consultant, a pediatric dietitian, an actual patient and nephrologist and getting the pharmacist perspective as well. I really hope that everyone who listened to this found it as useful and enlightening as I did, and we appreciate your support. Thank you so much to our panel members for their contributions to this very important discussion. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining us on this ride of the Kidney Commute. Remember, eligible audiences can earn continuing education credit for listening to this episode by clicking the link in the episode description. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please email the team at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. Stay tuned for future huddles, and in the meantime, continue to let new perspectives inspire your practice.